0: Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Mvemba Pezo Dizolele. I'm a senior fellow and the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This is a podcast where we talk everything Africa, politics, economics, security, and culture. Welcome. As Africa enters the second half of this year, 2022, African countries will confront a host of issues and challenges that carry over from the past six months. These include instability in the Sahel, security issues in the Horn of Africa, rising tensions in the Great Lakes region, and the insurgency in Cabo Delgado in Mozambique. But also the dysfunction of regional economic communities that once held so much promise. The list is long, and since the onset of the war in Ukraine, Africa also worries about and grapples with increased food insecurity. All this, of course, happens within the context of climate change. As is often the case with challenges, they provide opportunities for African leaders to do things differently and bring about positive change in so many areas, such as agriculture, good governance, and democracy. crises provide a chance to rethink everything. Joining me today on Into Africa is Jude Moore. Jude Moore is a senior policy fellow at the Center for Global Development. He previously served as Liberia's Minister of Public Works with oversight over the construction and maintenance of public infrastructure from December 2014 to January 2018. Prior to that role, Moore served as Deputy Chief of Staff to President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf and Head of the President Delivery Unit. As Head of the President Delivery Unit, his team monitored progress and drove Delivery of Public Sector Investment Program of Liberia, a program of over $1 billion in road, power, port infrastructure, social programs in Liberia after the Civil War. As one of the President's trusted advisors, he also played a crucial role in supporting President Sirleaf as Liberia responded to the West Africa Ebola outbreak and shaped its Ebola outlook. Mr. Moore is a lecturer at the University of Chicago's Harris School for Public Policy, where he teaches a class on the role of infrastructure in the practice of foreign policy and international development. His policy analysis and research focus are governance, the financing of infrastructure, and Africa's response to the changing landscape of external actors. His focus tracks the policies of traditional Aspiring and emerging actors on the continent, especially the rise of China and its expanding role in Africa. Good afternoon, Jude, and welcome.
1: Thank you, Vemba. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, well, it's my second time actually on Into Africa, so it's a pleasure to be back here.
0: Well, welcome back. Welcome back. We always like to bring uh, our partners back. As you think of the continent, a lot is happening, and of course, a lot is not happening. What is your outlook of the continent as we stand today?
1: Yeah, it's, you know, just listening to you there is difficult because we have challenges that are emanating from long-standing issues on the continent. But then we have things that are happening outside of Africa's borders that have significant consequences on lives and livelihoods on the continent itself. Some of the things you didn't even mention is what is happening in Darfur at the moment. There's been fighting again in Darfur. One of the things that you mentioned is what's happening in Eastern Congo. This thing between Rwanda and the DRC has been there for a while. But, you know, when Shisekedi came to power, there was hope that the way it started between him and Kagame, that it would be something different. One hopes, though, you know, we talked about opportunities, too, is that because the DRC is now a member of the East African community, that Kenya will play a more Prominent role in trying to resolve this. Those are some of the issues. But for me, I think the big question is the debt question and how African governments respond to debt. For the first time in multilateral debt resolution history, China is going to sit on a debt committee with the Paris Club, a co host with co chair with France. This is a big deal because China prefers to negotiate debt bilaterally and not through multilateral settings. At the IMF meetings, the last meetings, both the IMF and the World Bank criticized China for not stepping into the multilateral process. So China agreeing to co-host, this is important. So that's the debt question. But what is happening here in the U.S. too, And in the global north, we have central banks raising interest rates. That is going to make the cost of borrowing very high for African countries. So I wish I could see big opportunities. I'm afraid that I'm going to struggle with the big opportunities. And I think if we can mitigate the challenges, that would be a win for us in the next six months uh, going forward. So as we go on with the conversation, I'm sorry, apologizing in advance that I will spend a lot more time on challenges than on opportunities because we're faced with a lot of challenges on the continent. I still
0: believe that if we are faced with a lot of challenges on the continent, that actually means the reverse of that coin, right? A lot of opportunities. I mean, opportunity, you have to create them. I think part of the challenge is just that. Challenges, you see them right in front of you. Mm-hmm. But then opportunities, you have to create them. I think that's where leadership comes that's in. That's interesting.
1: i never looked at it that way.
0: Yeah. So by all means, let's talk about all these challenges because I see them as opportunities. Maybe we should go by region yes, and if yes. that will help. And then we can talk about the various topics So if we were to start in the Sahel, which has been front and center for the last several years, mostly because of instability or conflict, how does the Sahel present itself to you today?
1: So one of the first things that, you know, you see in the Sahel is the waning influence of France. There is now a strong current of anti-French sentiment. in in, in parts of, in Francophone Sahel, right? So what is Burkina Faso or or Mali? And even in places where you don't have that, there is sort of a dissatisfaction with the way France and African elites, especially in Francophone countries, have uh, conducted politics and economics. So there's that. When you think of the Sahel, you begin to worry about countries that border the Sahel. So, for example, we have seen incursions in parts of Cote d'Ivoire. There have been a number of incidents in both Benin and, I think, Togo. And there's a possibility, too, that northern Ghana might be at risk. So we have this big problem already in Niger, in Mali, in Burkina, and there is a possibility of that leaking down into those countries I mentioned. I did a piece in Africa Business in which I argued that it makes sense for ECOWAS to begin to think of a permanent security arrangement, sort of like they did with ECOMOG in Liberia, in Sierra Leone, in Gambia, because the scale of the insecurity in West Africa coming out of the Sahel is more than any one country can handle. But if we continue to depend on, say, Operation Bakken or the G5, things that are led by external actors, they're not sustainable in the long run. I think it makes sense for us to have a regional organization leading it, and then the external actors can provide assistance and technical support to an African response to to that. So when we think of the Sahel, it doesn't appear like the cool leaders in both Burkina and Mali have the capacity to bring the insurgency under control, right? They used that as the justification for unseating the government, but the situation has only gotten worse, right? They, we, we, we don't see an improvement. We're still seeing insurgents being able to take advantage of people, large numbers of people being killed. And so I think, yes, if we are thinking about the security landscape in Africa, the Sahel becomes a big part, not only because of what is happening at the moment, but because the risk that it poses to some of the most stable countries in West Africa.
0: So on that point, we know that um, what you've just described is driven by public discontent, bad governance, and a host of issues. A lot of these issues have led to coups in the countries that you've mentioned, different forms of coups. But you were once a minister in a government that had been elected Liberia was going through a transition, was right after the war. Were there ever moments where you worried about coups?
1: No, I think Liberia and to a certain extent Sierra Leone, the way the war ended and the way the country was rebuilt sort of reduced significantly even the prospect of a coup. So, for example, the entire army was disbanded and the new army was completely vetted Every member of the new army had to be a high school graduate. All of the officers are college graduates. The army wasn't very big, and the army ended up doing a lot of support to civilian stuff, like building roads and stuff like that. So there there was really no risk. But I think I understand what is happening, though, because if you think of, say, Mali and you think of Niger, where the Tuaregs for a long time have, it, it, it was a political conflict. It was about how much of the presence of the state was there and how much representation they had. And that political conflict is very hard on the state. We're talking about vast, airy expanses of territory. And the state has very weak capacity to be able to adequately police those areas or provide social services. So, But I think if people live for a long time without the presence of the state, then over time, the state began to lose its legitimacy in the eyes of the people. Also, if there is a perception that the government is very corrupt, then over time, the government also begins to lose legitimacy in the eyes of the people. And when I was in government, one of the things that our government was perpetually accused of was, you know, accusations of corruption. And in defense of our government, I would say that part of the reason why everyone was talking about corruption was The new government instituted a lot of things, policies that created new anti-corruption agencies that made them independent of the executive. So there was incentive for people to report corruption. But I think if countries go a long time with deep failures in governance and lack of accountability and inability to provide certain public goods like security, like infrastructure, like social services, then it reduces the amount of legitimacy that the government has in the eyes of the people and provides a pretext for coup plotters to remove the government and using clear justifications of this kind. So the one opportunity I see here, since we're looking for opportunity, is that every single time there's a coup d'etat, ECOWAS and AU steps in. You know, they suspend the government, they do this, they do that. But ECOWAS and the AU are conspicuously silent in the face of failed governance. So I think African institutions, regional institutions, need to step up now and hold the member states accountable for governance. You know, if you have these things we're calling constitutional coup, where the incumbent changes the constitution but makes it so that it's not retroactive and they can benefit from changes to the constitution to extend their mandate. That stuff, people are beginning to equate that to a coup. And so the institutions of the continent, because of this risk, need to begin to impress on their member states. I think there should be a rule. If you change the constitution to extend term limits, you should not be able to benefit from the change in the constitution. But, you know.
0: Correct. I, I fully agree because they use it as a reset. <laughs>
1: yes,
0: yes. You know, the yes. fellow has been in power for 10 years and then he sets the clock again. Yeah, exactly. Set yeah, the, the, clock, clock. the
1: clock gets to reset, you know, and, and be able to. That's what the guys in Guinea, that was the justification they gave, right? Correct. We saw this in Guinea. We also
0: see a constitution in Côte d'Ivoire. And they're becoming also as popular as the military coup. In fact, they're more popular than the military <laughs> coup. Because, <laughs> yeah. because so far nobody really has pushed back on those leaders who've carried this out. So you were talking about in the case of the Sahel that the fact that it's often external forces that come into up that is not helping with the solution. But then what kind of community, regional community you think will take this mantle? So ECOWAS. I was saying early in my introduction that some of these wrecks, as we call them, regional economic communities, for instance, they held so much promise when they were emerging. ECOWAS was such a group. Well, you know, they had some good moment, ECOWAS, in the past. So in the case of the Sahel, who's going to do this job?
1: I agree with you that despite its weaknesses and some dysfunction, I think it has to be ECOWAS. But I think part of the weakness of ECOWAS is a reflection of the weakness of Nigeria. When ECOWAS was strong, when ECOWAS intervened in Liberia, it was because Nigeria led, but as it stands, Nigeria itself has been battling an insurgency for more than a decade. The Nigerian military is now deployed to at least 34 of the 36 states. So Nigeria security services are overstretched. Nigeria derives a significant portion of its revenue from hydrocarbons, from oil. Fluctuations in that market has impacted Nigeria's ability. So Nigeria's inability to assert itself in West Africa reflects in the weakness of the regional organization, which means, you know, as I've argued in the past, maybe someone else will step up or a combination of someone else will step up. Look, the Europeans want to help, both as a European Union and as individual European countries. The Americans want to help. I think their help and assistance should be channeled through local ownership of that. So in West Africa, we paid a common ECOWAS levy So ECOWAS collects taxes on goods and services in West Africa. I honestly think that some of those should be used toward providing security across the continent. And so I think in this hell, there should be a greater role for ECOWAS. And which will mean then, of
0: course, we go back to the issue of governance that you had mentioned. If the countries in ECOWAS, the member states, are facing their own issues of governance and rising public discontent across the board, the case of Nigeria is one such example. Nigeria, when it showed leadership, ECOAS worked. Every regional economic community need a hegemon of sort. And yes. this is not just for Africa. I mean, the EU mm-hmm. works because you have Germany, you have France, you have countries right. that can play the big brother role and say, hey, Greece over there, shape up. Otherwise, if you want us to come and help, these are the conditions. Spain, these are the conditions. Such and such country, these are the conditions. But also, you don't just become a member of those institutions because you're in the region. Before even you join, you have to shape up and meet certain requirements and fill certain conditions so that the charter of the institution can be upheld. Is that something that uh, makes sense?
1: Just even outside of the Sahel, you think SADC, you think ESC, you think COMESA think? Any of them. These organizations come out of the anti-colonial fight. They have their roots in that beginning with the OAU and then the regional ones. And so I don't think any of them were going to deny membership to any countries. And so based on the governance, but I think, look, we're in the 21st century now and these organizations need to be brought into the 21st century. So I think To join the EU, for example, there are things you need to have in your economy, there are laws that need to be changed. But the reason that works for the EU and the reason it works is because you get great benefits from joining the EU. So unless there are obvious benefits that accrue to countries when they join these regional economic communities, then you don't have a carrot, right, or a stick. Right, so if you deny the member certain benefits that accrue by being a member, but most of these organizations, like you said, they had great promise when they were formed, but they haven't really uh, delivered as much. When I think about it, I feel like the biggest one is SADC, right? I guess the most functional one is SADC, but mainly because of South Africa. But the most integrated one economically would probably be EAC, but Kenya plays a big role there. Politically, I think the most integrated is ECOWAS. All of us in West Africa carry the same passport. We travel freely across borders. So we've got good political integration, but we haven't matched the East African or Africans or the Southern Africans on economic integration. I think the more economic benefits that accrue by being in the organization, then you can use that to be able to shape members' behavior. Those are structures that
0: Africans themselves can
1: create, right? So if you have
0: Nigeria playing the role, because a functional Nigeria can play that role. Absolutely, SADC... Well, I think it's functional. Besadek it has a lot of problems, right? Because there's a lot of gaps. It's not fully integrated. It's nothing like what you're describing in ECOWAS or in EAC yes. before the DRC joined. So there have a lot of issues there in that sense. Let's pass to another area, which is yes. the horn. <laughs> what does the crystal ball look like for the horn?
1: Ethiopia remains a problem. Behatmet, the president of Ethiopia, has said that they have created a body that will reach out to negotiate with the Tigrayans. It doesn't appear that the Ethiopian military is strong enough to win the war in Tigray militarily, but the Tigrayans themselves have been weakened substantially that they're not able to threaten Addis. And at such a stalemate, the best possible outcome is some sort of negotiated settlement. One hopes, because you know Ethiopia was one of those countries that was sort of performing well. I mean, it was one of the few African countries that came closest to copying the Chinese model of state-fueled capitalism. To this day, Ethiopian Airlines remains one of the most profitable ones on the continent and and it's run professionally.
0: that preceded the current regime. Absolutely. (laughs) So they cannot take credit for that. That preceded long, long. Like, you (laughs)
1: know, if if, if it were to go down, it would be like, "Ah, inherited your it was great, now it's gone down. So if to sustain it, we should give them credit for it. I think there's that, but you have to think also like in Somalia, parts of Ethiopia and parts of Kenya, there is a drought and that drought has affected, you know, food supplies. They have had four failed rainy seasons and it looks like we're going into a fifth. That has meant that, especially in Somalia, tens of millions of people are food insecure and face a famine. Supposedly is some of the worst famine in the region in 40 years. So it's not just a security crisis in Ethiopia or al-Shabaab in Somalia or the uh, transitional politics in Somalia. You also have this huge food crisis. You know, and one of the arguments that I make when we talk about, oh, how has the Russian invasion of Ukraine affected African food, you notice that especially sub-Saharan Africa, we don't eat a lot of wheat products. You know, we eat rice, we eat maize, we eat matoke. We eat other grains and other things. Sorghum, millet. Sorghum, exactly. (laughs) But when there are pressures on the supply of wheat elsewhere, then they begin to exert pressure on other grains. And because of crop failures in those places, even in Chad, we now have this issue of huge hunger. So when I'm thinking about the horn, it is not just a security situation that I'm looking at. I'm also looking at the effect of the famine and what the heightened price of grains would mean for lives and livelihoods in the region.
0: So what are the opportunities there? Africans may not eat as much wheat and other, but they use a lot of oil from Ukraine and Russia as well. You know, in Africa, we like our oil, we like to fry, we like, you know. We like all the matoke you're talking about. That stuff require oil as well. Before
1: <laughs> before we came on the podcast, I had okra with rice and it's fried okra. You know. There we go.
0: So, <laughs> so how do we deal with this oil? But this is funerary. I think
1: like this is the thing on our own podcast at CGD Lagos to I talked to McKinsey. They had done a report that showed that Africa is capable of providing up to twenty percent of global grains. All right, the continent can feed itself and, and export. And the research they did show that we don't even need to expand new lands and bring new lands on our cultivation. It's just more efficient use of current available farmland. So why is
0: not that happening? You were a minister... Because- the whole ways of power what was the problem
1: yeah i think it comes back to the question you raised from the beginning this agriculture especially high yield agriculture requires high competence governance right it requires a mix of policies that allows the country to be able to do that and the quality of governance have failed in a lot of instances on this one is you know things like preservation of water supplies of large scale irrigation but also infrastructure that connects the farming areas to the cities, so that they can be able to have access. We're talking about post-harvest loss. How do you preserve it? How do you increase the yield by adding inputs, especially the use of fertilizer? Most African farming, there's no large mechanization. So it's me and my family, and we're using our hands to clear what we can clear to feed us. And most African countries, I, I don't know, you can tell me about your experience we have this thing called the hunger season. Mm -hmm. That is when the harvest from the last harvest is finished, but we have not yet reached the harvest of this harvest. And there's a period in between when everybody's hungry. (laughs) Right. That's
0: uh, during the dry season, the transition back to the rain.
1: But the reason is largely because we don't have the capacity to store. I was in Burkina. And we were driving between Wagga and Bobo de Lazo.
0: In Burkina Faso.
1: Yes. And you see all of the agriculture everywhere. And I was talking to this guy and he was saying, look, we grow a lot of pom uh a uh, lot of uh, potatoes. potatoes. <laughs> yeah, yes, potatoes. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> we grow a lot of potatoes, but we export all of the potatoes. And then later in the year, we import a lot of potatoes. And the main reason is storage. Mm-hmm. They don't have the capacity to be able to store temperature control storage that allows them to be able to do that. So I think the quality of governance, I think most people, when they think of governance, they just think like, oh, corruption and elections and stuff like that. But no, it is the policy, the planning over years, over decades, a consistency in government planning and support toward that. I think this is where we've been making the mistake. But there is an opportunity here since we're talking about opportunities. Exactly, what
0: is the opportunity there?
1: I think the opportunity is that when you look across the world, the tech sector has gone into almost every area and done tech-enabled agriculture, tech-enabled health services. So for example, in a place like Kenya, you have something called Trigger Foods, which provides a clear market for farmers, provides an incentive for them to be able to do that, offers them better prices. I think when, when that begins to happen, Tech enabled logistics, tech enabled farming, that will make a difference, but that is not going to be enough. For things like agriculture, it requires significant public sector support for the kind of infrastructure that is required, for the kind of supportive fertilizer and imports that is required. And for a long time, we haven't done that. I hope we have learned that the more resilient we are, the more we grow our own food, the more we're able to produce more of the stuff we eat, the more resilient we are to external shocks.
0: Do you think the situation with Ukraine has been a wake-up call for Africa, and especially African leaders, or do you think this will be another missed opportunity?
1: I'm a very hopeful person, but I don't think so. I think African leaders are just going to weather this storm and be like, oh, it's going to end at some point and then go back to business as usual. And, and I think that's a missed opportunity. Big time. So. The two
0: regions that we have left, we have a few minutes to go, but I want to get your sense of what you see in the Great Lakes region and then what you see in the South. Now we're missing the Great Lakes, which is center, and then the Southern part with Mozambique. You know,
1: Nigeria and the DRC, properly functioning, can lift the entire continent. <laughs> Nigeria and the DRC can be our Germany, can be our United States, to such an extent that most of the economic activity on the continent can be centered around those two countries and we will be well the drc looked like for a while things had subsided but now we have this war of words between the drc and rwanda with rwanda accusing the drc of launching attacks on its soil
0: it's beyond now, words though there's some shelling and other things exactly on
1: But here's the thing. It appears like the U.S., at least the U.S. Congress, because I saw Chairman Menendez, is siding with the Congolese that Rwanda is indeed helping the M23. Then you have Uganda, where the president's son was making these very inflammatory tweets.
0: He's very active on social media, yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. Now, first is we had this... Thing between Uganda and Rwanda. And to a certain extent, the president's son got involved and it looked like things were settling down. At this point, Rwanda and the DRC and Uganda are already cooperating on security issues, right? That allowed Ugandan troops to operate on DRC soil. So this is huge, and one hopes that with the DRC now joining the ESC, we will see more mediation efforts from the EAC, and that the Africans could be able to resolve this. In Chad, they have, as I noted earlier, they also have a crop failure. So besides the security situations that we have in Chad, we have a hunger issue that might turn into a famine. There is that happening there. But I think most importantly, we can't deny that in terms of governance, in terms of improving the quality of life of its people, Rwanda has done an excellent job. Rwanda has probably the best PR on the continent. (laughs) In terms of PR for sure, (laughs) (laughs) promoting (laughs) promoting their country, and it it makes sense for us a DRC that is at peace with its neighbors is significantly useful for the entire Great Lakes region, but even for East Africa. So, one hopes that African leaders will step up here, especially from the East African community.
0: But this is where the challenge I'd mentioned earlier about regional economic community that holds so much promise but do not deliver. It's kind of baffling that the um, DRC just joined EAC, the East African community, doubling that market because DRC represents nearly half of that market. But yet you have countries in that community fighting DRC or fighting each uh, other, which is like, okay, are we in the same community or are we not? You know, this is what I meant early on by using the reference of Europe. It's like... The entire notion of being in one community is to have full integration. And the idea is that if people are fully integrated, they're not going to be chopping each other's hand or or doing any of that. stuff. It it raises a lot of questions there.
1: Yeah, I think that's a very fair point. But I think the tensions sort of predate the DRC joining. You have this issue where, according to the Congolese side, most of the people in the M23, they are Tutsis. And according to the Rwandans, you know, you have Hutu militias that still find haven across the border. At some point, this cannot go on forever. This makes no sense for us to continue to go on forever. But like you said, who will step in? Who has the gravitas to be able to bring this under control? The DRC is big enough to be the regional hegemon, but in terms of governance, it isn't. It's not at this point.
0: But, you know, France and and Germany were at loggerheads like this, but they came to resolve their own problem. You know, we've been hearing about Hutu militia, Tutsi for a long time now. It's been about almost 30 years now. There yep, comes yep. a point where if you are strong,
1: I agree, you have
0: to say, this is our problem, let's fix it. It doesn't take an outsider to come and fix your problem. You are neighbors, you know what your problems
1: are. I agree, 100%. So let's talk about the South. What's happening? How do you see the South? You have the insurgency in Mozambique. I mean, this would have been one of the largest investments in the region, in the in the gas fields. But again, what is happening in Mozambique, people keep talking about Islamic terrorism and insurgents. That is a governance issue. That is a governance issue of people who feel that the central government doesn't have a presence there. And when it does, it's usually through the army. That is part of what is driving this. I know that SADC is leading an intervention there. The Rwandans have been intervening there. But there is no long-term solution to that problem that is military it has to be a political solution to that problem and there has to be some sort of revenue sharing agreement that the region that is responsible for creating all that wealth some of that wealth accumulate in that region and people are able to see a visible presence of the resources being extracted in south africa we have the politics that remain dysfunctional we have escom which is the national utility that cannot keep the lights on. They, they do load shedding. You know, load
0: shedding has oh. become a common, vocab- <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a common like a, vocabulary of everyone. It's like a
1: normal thing now for exactly. load shedding. You have South Africa infrastructure. There is a systematic effort underway, like theft of rail sleepers, copper wires, undermining the South African economy. Then there's this huge case now where supposedly the South African president had $4 million that was stuck in On furniture. his farm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, at exactly the moment when he should be gearing up for a second term run. And so- How it, many millions do they think it was? I, I thought it was four. Four, wow. Just yeah. up, like excess cash that's sitting on the farm. Yeah, but then the crazy thing, I mean, from what you're hearing about this is that when the, when the thieves stole it, They were found, the money was recovered, and then the thieves were paid $10,000 each not to 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 say anything. Obviously, this is a distraction, right, from very serious problems that South Africa face. South Africa, of all the economies on the continent, is the most heavily dependent on coal. South Africa is the country that had an agreement with the Europeans and the Americans as a means of being able to receive resources from them so that they can be able to pivot away from coal. South Africa has significant potential for renewables, even green hydrogen. But until this governance issue, especially this corruption issue, is brought under control in South Africa, it is the most unequal country in the world. Black South Africans continue to be significantly underrepresented in their economy. So when you look at Africa today, and on top of all of these regions that we've talked about, there's supposed to be 1 billion people added to that population between now and 2050. How do we accommodate these numbers? Something has to change. And that goes back to your point from the beginning. The quality of governance in Africa has to improve. And it's across the board. It is in the accountability uh, systems. It's in our agriculture. It's in our infrastructure. It's in how we plan. I should say one thing before we leave. Almost every single time across the continent, when there is an election and a new guy comes to power, They fire everybody. I mean, sometimes even functional roles, they remove people. This is not good because in the end you start over every time the institutional knowledge institutional memory at some point there should be some roles that are held by professionals that are allowed to survive succeeding regimes because for governance and policies to have consistent outcomes they have to be exercised over time but if every single time we have an election you start over you start over that doesn't work in the in the in the long run there's
0: no capital built
1: yeah exactly exactly
0: one thing that you have not mentioned that has been of interest to a lot of people, especially in Washington, is the role of Russia. So if you can take a minute to talk about the role of Russia, where
1: you stay today, within this context. So yeah, quickly, I think uh, Russia sort of made it a practice and a specialty by focusing on countries that are isolated, or countries that have been uh, sort of kicked out of the by the West. So countries that were the governance or the government's are not behaving properly and the West turns away from them and they turn to Russia. That's what they do. The second thing is Russia doesn't have the same checkbook size of an EU or China or the United States. So then Russia just narrows down what it can provide and that security assistance, well in weapons and training.
0: So that's where Wagner Group and those EMCs exactly. come in.
1: Okay. This is where they come in. And I think we keep talking about Russia, especially in Mali, and in that sense. I said first when I spoke about the Sahel that there is a growing anti-French sentiment. And once the French were kicked out, it meant most Europeans who are allied with the French were going to leave too. But the Malian government still has to protect its people, still has to fight an in insurgency. Russia seems like seemed like the obvious choice to them. So I don't think there is some sort of affinity for Russia or an agreement with Russia on issues. I think a lot of choices, like for example, the Central African Republic is actually the Russians that are actually helping to keep the the government in power. I think they were making practical decisions based on the exigent circumstances they face. It wasn't like, oh, We love Russia and blah, blah, blah. You know, Russia plays the role of a spoiler. The kinds of countries that Russia seeks to work with, the kinds of places that Russia seeks to go. You know, you don't see a big Russia problem in Nigeria. You don't see a big Russia problem in Ghana. You don't see a big Russia problem in Cote d'Ivoire. It's pretty strategic in the kinds of places Russia chooses to form its partnerships.
0: Well, so from what I understand, it's all about really governance, governance, governance. You know, on this show, we always talk about the magic wand. There's a gap the gap between perception and reality. So we're going to mind the gap now. Where is the difference in perception when it comes to Africa, especially given all the issues that you've covered? And where is that gap compared to the reality? What will you do now that you have the magic wand sitting right there in your hand?
1: Well, so first is I will wave the wand so that the rest of the world can see that Africans are not just sitting down and these problems are happening. They are really hard-working people who are doing their best to solve some of these problems. It's not like people are just sitting down and nothing's happening. But if I had a magic wand, what I would do then is, for the first time, countries will be able to make long-term plans and keep them even. There will be an elite consensus, an elite agreement Over the next decade or the next decade and a half, this is what we're going to do. So regardless of who comes to power, what changes, there is a consensus among the elite about what the future of the country has to be. Until we get to that point, we're going to have all of these plans and this possible future, but that piece will be missing. There's a new book out called Betting on Development or something like that, and he makes that point too. But this has been something I've always held, that you require an elite consensus over at least two decades for countries to be able to escape that. And to end, I would say, like Liberian civil war, there were multiple peace deals again and again and again. And at one point, there was an agreement among the elite in Liberia that this nonsense needs to end. And once we got that elite consensus, the peace came. So I think it's the same thing that happens with development and that gap between the reality and the promise. So are you a uh, Afro-pessimist, Afro-optimist, or Afro-realist? I am an Afro-optimist. I honestly believe that beginning in 2050, the world will begin to see the emergence of the African century.
0: Okay, that's a long time for us to wait. but uh,
1: no, we're, no, we're building up toward that. All right, <laughs> all right, let's build up to
0: 2050. That's a while there. But uh, Jude Moore, thank you very much for joining us. This has been very insightful. It's a pleasure to have you on Into Africa. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends. Subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts. You can also read our analysis and report at CSIS.org slash Africa. So long.